want to invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 2. Those of you who were with us on Wednesday evening at our prayer meeting, we looked at this psalm briefly, and we did so as an encouragement to prayer, to not lose heart as we live in this world. This psalm reminds us of several things that are helpful to be reminded, first of all, that Christ is reigning. The Lord is seated in the heavens. Nothing can alter that regardless of what takes place in this world. And I thought it appropriate since two weeks ago we looked at the first psalm to come back to this second psalm because many throughout history have seen that these two psalms go together. And both of them, though distinct and separate, serve as an introduction, if you will, to the book of Psalms in its larger state containing all 150 psalms. So next week, Lord willing, we're going to begin our study of the book of Ephesians. And once we get there, we'll stay put for a while. But I wanted to go back and make sure that we see how these two psalms fit together. So let's read Psalm 2 and then ask for the Lord's blessing upon his word. The first verse begins... Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we've read your word, and we're here as those who hold it in the highest esteem. Lord, we pray you would give us an understanding of it. Open our eyes to see the truth. Help us to see Christ clearly. We pray and ask it in his name. Amen. So when you view Psalms 1 and 2 together, both of them pronounce a blessing upon a people. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not, but also blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on the word of God. He will not perish like the ungodly. He will live blessed both in this life and in the life to come. You'll notice at the very end of Psalm 2, there is another blessing of sorts pronounced upon the same group of people. Blessed are all of those who put their trust in him. 
I like the way Matthew Henry combines and yet keeps distinct these two psalms when he says, The foregoing psalm, Psalm 1, was moral. It showed us what is our duty. This psalm, the second, is evangelical and shows us our Savior. Another way you can make the distinction, Psalm 1 declares the way in which the blessed should walk. And we are told that when we do so by not walking in the counsel of the ungodly or the path of sinners or the seat of the scornful, then our end will be blessed. Psalm 2 shows us not just the blessed way, but the king of the blessed way. And it really shows us that while we are on this way, that there will be great opposition, not for our sakes alone, but because Christ himself is being opposed. Psalm 2 has a central place, not only in the Psalter in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. You might remember that Psalm 2 is cited early on in the history of the church in the book of Acts, there in the fourth chapter. And also the writer of the he- writer to the Hebrews uses the first, or excuse me, uses a couple of these verses repeatedly, both in the first chapter and again in the fifth chapter, to show how Christ is indeed better and how the new covenant is indeed better than the old. And so as we read through there, you may have noticed that. And it's the seventh verse that is quoted in both of those places in the book of Hebrews and also in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, which is helpful when we see how the New Testament unfolds the old. We're not told here that David is the author of this psalm, are we? Some of David's psalms, like the third psalm, begin with an inspired title, a psalm of David, and we're even given the context for Psalm 3. When he fled from Absalom, his son. But Psalm 2 names no author. But if you go to Psalm, excuse me, Acts chapter 4, which I want to do. So go to Acts chapter 4. You'll notice here that David is seen to be the author and it is ascribed to him that that's the case. So Acts chapter 4, we jump right into the middle of Peter and John having been arrested, having been warned not to speak any longer in the name of Jesus, having been imprisoned, having escaped, being found again preaching. And so we get down into the 23rd verse of Acts chapter 4, and it says of them, having and being let go, they went their own they went to their own companions. And reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said. Now he's quoting from Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord. And the interpretation of it here by Peter is against his Christ. So if you go back with me to Psalm 2. 
As is the case very often, the types and shadows and promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled and come into full light as they are applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Jesus said in Luke 24? As he walked with those two men on the road to Emmaus, he says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. One of the things that we need to confess heartily is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the great theme of scripture. Beginning to end, in type and shadow in the old, in fulfillment in the new, Jesus Christ is the central theme of the scriptures. We see that that's the way the apostles took it here, not just giving David authorship of the psalm, but showing how it makes application to the Lord Jesus Christ. Very many of the things that we have read and will study in this second psalm have an immediate contextual application to David. But many more of them can certainly apply only to the Lord Jesus. And that's what I hope to be able to convey to you as we work our way through. So I want to break this psalm into four parts. It divides itself easily into four parts. The first few verses detail the raging of the nations. Something that is still taking place. The second section, it is the response of the one sitting in heaven. And then the third part, the rule of the Messiah. And then the fourth part, the responsibility of mankind. What do we do with all of this information? So let's look at the first part here. The raging of the nations. It is formed in a question in verse 1. Why do the nations rage? The word is interesting. It means to boil over. Why are the nations boiling over? Why are they plotting vanity? And let's be careful with the wording of this first verse. The nations, some of your translations may say the heathen and then the people. We understand the the nations are the heathen raging against God. At least to some degree we can understand it. But who are the people here mentioned in verse 1? A very large number of commentators would tell you that these are the people of Israel. And that is borne out. Throughout not only the Old Testament as the prophets are stoned and killed as they come and declare the word of the Lord. But even in the new, as we learn in the parable, the son finally comes into his vineyard. And what happens? They take him, they cast him aside, and they kill him. The people plotting a vain thing. This verse speaks to the spiritual struggle That is a reality and will always be a reality between Christ, his kingdom, and the ungodly. Paul speaks of 
of it on an individual level in Galatians chapter 5 when he talks about the flesh lusting against the spirit. That's the inward struggle that every Christian and true believer has with the spirit of God reigning in their heart through grace but yet still struggling against sin in their life. What we read here in verse 1 doesn't speak to that individual struggle. It speaks to the struggle on a much larger plane and on a much larger scale. The unredeemed mass of humanity raging against God and his Christ and the people plotting vanity. Again, here's what Matthew Henry says about this. He says, we have here a very great struggle about the kingdom of Christ. Hell and heaven contesting it. The seat of the war is this earth where Satan has long had a usurped kingdom and where he exercises his dominion to such a degree that he has been called in Scripture the prince of the power of the air and the God of this world in which we live. The raging of the nations is a satanic work. The plotting of the peoples is a satanic work. The word rage, John Gill gives it a definition. He says, it is a tumultuous gathering together as is that of a mob with great confusion and noise. And really, if you want to see that illustrated, just go to Judas's betrayal of Christ and what do you see? A mob coming out against Christ with swords, with torches. This is the raging of the nation, so to speak. And there we have both peoples represented. We have Romans, the Gentiles, and we have the rulers of the people, the Jews. Both are united in their hatred for Christ. That is the one thing that will unite a very diverse people. You take two nations. They may be opposed politically. They may even be enemies. They may even be wartime enemies, but they will unite in this one endeavor, and that is to oppose the word and the will of God and the Christ of Scripture. The nations do indeed rage against him. The people do indeed plot vanity against, notice is very particular, against the Lord. And against his anointed. Notice verse 2 says the kings. Those who have the place of highest authority. Kings unite. And set themselves against the Lord. It's also said here that the rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord and against his anointed. And here's what they say. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Let us break free from this yoke of bondage that has been placed upon us. This yoke of morality that is expressed in the Ten Commandments of God. This yoke of the law that has been given that shows us the way of the blessed and the way of the ungodly. Let us break free from all of these things. And though it has been expressed variously through the years, isn't it still true today that the nation's Even our own nation is raging against the authority of God. Raging against the sovereignty of God. 
raging against the authority of his word, raging against every bit of truth that is expressed through the word of God. Almost to a point, the world has some opposition. In the beginning, God created. That is a truth that we as believers glory in, right? We ourselves are of his creation. But how do the nations rage against that? How do the peoples plot a vain thing against that when they come up with various ways that creation got its start? All of that points to nothing less than raging against Christ. Why do I say that? Because the scripture tells us in the book of Colossians, Proverbs 8, and various other places that Christ himself was active in the creation of mankind and everything that we see. Even to the point of even now he is the one credited for holding all things together. In him all things consist. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. Is it any wonder why the nations rage and the people plot vanity against this type of truth? They have set themselves. They have taken counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us throw off the yoke. What we see here and live amongst as the people of God is the continued raging and vain plotting against God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's the explanation for it. Why does the mass of unredeemed humanity do the things that they do? Because they've set themselves against the Lord. They've set themselves against Christ. But notice not just the raging of the people, but the response of him who sits in the heavens. And before we read the fourth verse, just know that the psalm phrases it in an earthly type of language that we readily and easily can relate to and understand. So when you read verse 4, in response to the raging and the vain plotting of the nations and the people, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. The word there is contempt. He will hold them in contempt. The response here, first of all, we're told that he is seated or sitting in the heavens. It speaks to his position of sovereignty as ruler, as he which reigns and rules over all things. Does he take notice of the raging and the plotting? Of course he does. What's his response to it? Is it fretting? Is it being unsettled? Is it asking questions like, why has this creation of mine gone so awry? Far from any of that. His response is one of scorn. His response is even one of mockery. He laughs at their raging and he laughs at their plotting of vanity, of how they might throw off his bonds and cords and derail his plan of redemption. He laughs at the attempts to discredit Christ for who he is. He laughs at the attempts to distort and pervert the gospel of his son, which we're told in the scriptures is the very power of God unto salvation. 
One of the ways we looked at this psalm this past Wednesday evening and was an encouragement to us as we prayed is regardless of what we see in the world, we come and we meet and we pray to a God who is in control. Nothing is off the rails from his perspective. Nothing has gone awry from his perspective. We're going to see in his response how that's stated when we get to verse 6. But just note for now, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And we might say it like this. These two things are, are somewhat, if we, if we didn't know them from the revelation of Scripture, they might be done in silence. The nations might not know that the Lord is holding them in derision. The nations might not know that far from being unsettled, the Lord who sits in heaven is actually laughing at their opposition. But verse 5 tells us that there is a point in time when he will make this known. Then he shall speak to them. In his wrath. And distress them. The ESV says there. And terrify them. In his deep. Displeasure. So this is his response. One first of holding in derision. Or in contempt. And secondly. And finally. Speaking to them. In his wrath. What does he say? We're given in quotations of verse 6 what he says. And you have to love the first word of the sixth verse. And it's yet. It doesn't deny the truth of the first three verses, it doesn't deny the validity of raging nations and peoples plotting vanity. It doesn't deny the reality that there are a countless host of people who are trying to break away from the bonds and cords of his. But in the face of all of that, even though all of that is true and will continue to be true, he says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Certainly could be an immediate context or reference to David. But as we looked in Acts 4. And more importantly in Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 5. This is a prophetic statement concerning the rule and reign of King Jesus over his creation. And it's also a declaration that nothing, no amount of hell on earth can change it. No amount of raging and plotting can change the fact that God has set his son as the one who rules over his creation. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So we've seen the raging, the response of the one sitting in heaven. What about this rule of the Messiah? What does he say to him? And, and keep in mind the context of the psalm. All of this fanfare, and I want to go back to that, if I can find it, the definition of what 
raging is. In the face of this tumultuous gathering together that is that of a mob with great confusion and noise. In the face of all of that, this is the Lord's declaration saying to his son, and now the son, the true Messiah, repeating what he has heard, the Lord has said to me. In the face of all of this, you are my son. And isn't that what we've heard? This is, this is the thundering voice from heaven in the New Testament, right? This is my beloved son. Hear him. So here we are told that the Lord has said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This does not mean that the son has a beginning. Orthodox Christian belief states otherwise, that Jesus Christ is eternal. Having no beginning, certainly having no end. What this means, if you go and you fast forward into the New Testament, part of what it must mean is that there was a point in time when Christ entered his own creation. Coming as the one being born of a virgin. Begotten of God. And isn't that the same way that we read it? In John 3, 16, his only begotten son. Jesus is the only one the father has given when it comes to redemption. There is no other. There will be no other. I have begotten you. And so far, if you look only at verse 4, you might say, well, this is a somewhat lopsided view of the God of the Bible. The God of Scripture is, we're told in very explicit terms, the God of love. God is love. Amen. That is absolutely true. But we're also told that God is a God of wrath. Verse 4 points us more in that direction. He is sitting in the heavens and he is laughing, scorning, even mocking and holding in derision this futile attempt to throw his plan of redemption off course. And we're right to see it that way. But by the time we get to verse 6, notice what he says to his son. Who would have been soon dispatched on this mercy of redemption. This is what the son hears. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Those nations that in verse 1 are raging against him. The ones who are plotting vanity against him. The one that he is holding in derision. He tells his son, you ask of me and I'll give you those same nations as an inheritance. And they will be your people. No more raging. No more plotting in vanity. Why else would the Psalms declare to us that the nations should be glad? Because Christ is a savior for the nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation will be numbered in that great multitude that is assembled before him to worship the redeemed of God. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth. For your possession. This is the authority or what we call the rule of King Jesus. Notice in verse 9. 
This is where I get the word rule. Some of your translations say, you shall rule them with the rod of iron. The New King James, which I'm reading, says, you shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Make no mistake, when you read the scriptures, Jesus is indeed full of grace and truth. But he will also one day be installed with all the authority of heaven as the judge of all the earth. You can't get around either one of those truths. One day in the end, the one who came to redeem will be clothed in the robe of judgment. And he will righteously and gloriously judge all of those who stand before him. So what do we do? We know the nation's rage. We know God responds to that rage. We know that the Messiah will rule or break them with the rod of iron. But what is the responsibility of mankind to all of this truth? There's one response, and it's a damning, fatal response. It's just to not care about any of it. This is just Bible speech. This is for my parents. This is for religious people. I'm not so religious. I'm not so convinced that any of this is true. May I appeal to you. Give these things serious consideration. They're true. You can believe them now unto the saving of your soul. Or you can have them revealed to you in a later day. When your knee bows before Christ and you confess him as Lord. But not unto the saving of your soul. That's just a forced Submission that both Isaiah and the Apostle Paul write about. Which way will you have it? Well, look at verse 10. It tells us what our responsibility is. Though it's phrased to kings and judges corresponding to the rulers and the kings back in verse 2. Now, therefore... Be wise. So to have any lesser response than what is detailed in verses 10, 11, and 12 is folly, foolishness, which stems from self-exaltation and being wise in your own eyes. The true way of wisdom in verse 10, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, which tells us that the response or the actions of verse one and two, first of all, is a lack of wisdom, a lack of true biblical God revealed wisdom. But it's also a lack of instruction. It's also a lack of basic biblical doctrine. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Whether or not you number these things One, two, three, or four. I'm just numbering them. There's two things here with verse 10 being a precursor to the main thing in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. 
How can you do anything less when you realize that he is seated in the heavens and he is laughing at the attempts to mock and scorn and to cast him off? If he can cast off the if he can cast off and hold in derision entire nations and entire groups of people, certainly he can cast off and hold in derision any individual. So will you be wise? Will you be instructed? Will you serve the Lord with fear? The word serve here means to come. To give yourself in worship. The word fear here doesn't necessarily mean with a physical fear of trembling, but with the trembling of being awed by who he is. And I think that's borne out in the second phrase and rejoice with trembling. And then verse 12 says, kiss the son. What in the world does this mean? Pay homage to the son. You may have in the margin of your Bible. This is a call to worship. With a kiss being a sign, not just of affection, but a sign of submission. In, in Bible culture, and even in some cultures today, the subject comes and plants a kiss on the cheek of the one who is in authority over him. So we're told to be wise, to be instructed, to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling, and to kiss the Son. Pay homage to him. Come and worship him. Cast off your raging against him. Cast off the plotting of vanity against him. Come and bow before him in submission with eyes filled with love towards him. Come and give yourself to him in worship. That's the only saving response. That's the only wise response. That's the only instructed response. Look at the alternative. You might call this the result of not doing these things, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Go back and read with me, if you would, the last verse of Psalm 1. We've said that these go together. The sixth verse says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Two weeks ago when we studied this psalm, towards the end, the application was made. Everyone is on their way to somewhere. Whether or not you want to be on a way, you're on one of two ways. That's just how things boil themselves down. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Carry that over to verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. 
So here again, we have the marriage of the love and the wrath of God seated in heaven. Verse 8, ask of me and I'll give you these nations that are raging against me. There will be some amongst the number of those that you collect for yourself as a bride in the end who were numbered with these raging, vain nations. There is the overwhelming love and mercy of God, the wonderful grace of Jesus that we sang about. But notice verse 12 speaks of his wrath. And notice that it must only be kindled a little to accomplish its purpose. A little wrath of God is enough. He doesn't even have to turn the heat all the way up to make the way that you are on perish. So what will you do? Will you be wise like the kings are instructed in verse 10? Will you serve the Lord with fear? Will you rejoice before him with trembling? Will you pay homage to him, come and worship and kiss the son? Or will you not? If you cast these things aside, then know that he will in time be angry. And he'll make that anger known when his wrath is kindled just a bit. And then we have the end of the psalm. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. The word blessed means the same thing here as it did back in verse 1 of the first psalm. Happy. But not just happy about your circumstances not just happy with the way your life is going because all of that can change in a moment all of that can come crashing down around you in the blink of an eye if you were able to have a conversation with Job and we were able to ask Job how quickly everything can come crashing down he would concur very quick So the word blessed is happy, not just in your circumstances, but blessed of God because of the way that you were on. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Notice even here, we don't have to look any further than just this verse right here to see how narrow the way is. It doesn't give us options. Blessed are those who put their trust in horses? No. In chariots? No. But in the Lord. In Him. If you would have the real and true blessed life of God both now and throughout all eternity future, I can tell you with all certainty, you must bow your knee and come to Christ. Turning from your sins and embracing him as the Christ of God, the redeemer of his people. The one who alone shed his blood for you. Would you have him? If you will, he will have you. We can't say too often, he is more willing to save you than you are to come. Will you have him?
Blessed are all of those who put their trust in him. Let me close by just asking you, your trust is somewhere. You're trusting in something right now. Even if you've never thought about it, even if you don't know how to verbalize it, you're trusting in something. Some trust in good works to get them to heaven. Some don't trust in anything at all and just think it's all a farce. Do you see how that, even that, is trusting in your belief that all of this is a lie? You're trusting in something. The scripture tells us that there is only one person, one object of faith that is trustworthy. There is only one person that is worthy of you putting your trust in to see you through to the end. Everyone else, everything else is going to fail you. Time and opportunity will prove that out. Your closest friend very well may fail you in this life. May turn the other way and completely deny that they ever even knew you. Your abilities, your talents will fail you in the end. What you can do today, you aren't guaranteed that you'll be able to do tomorrow. Then what? The only person, the only system of belief, however you want to state it, the only way, and I'm using the language of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the only way that is trustworthy That you can commit yourself to lay your head down on your pillow at night and go to sleep in peace knowing that if you never wake up, it's all going to be okay. The only way that is trustworthy is the way of Jesus Christ. He is the way. What will you do with Jesus? You must do something. Will you have him? Again, if you will, he will have you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word and your mercy. Lord, humanly speaking, we see no reason why the raging nations should be objects of your mercy. Why you would tell your own son to ask for them and you will give them to him as an inheritance. But then we're reminded that your ways are not our ways. That you are a God of mercy. You abound in mercy. You delight in mercy. You are ready to forgive. You are so unlike us in that respect. You hold no grudges. You harbor no resentment. So Father, I pray that you would make the glories of the gospel known. That you would... Shine the light of your grace upon the face of Jesus Christ. And if if there are those here who are holding him in contempt and mockery and scorn, raging against him or plotting vanity against him, trying to cast off the bonds and cords, the yoke, that you would take those same cords 
and make them cords of love. Bring all under submission to Christ and then prove that his yoke is indeed easy and his burden is light. Father, how our hearts fill with gratitude when we think of how merciful you've been to us. Even as we began our service by reading where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Can we not see that? You've shown it to us again here in this psalm. Sin abounded in raging against you. But grace abounded much more. Yet you have set your king on your holy hill of Zion. Father, help us all to be wise with wisdom given from you. Help us to be instructed. Help us to serve you with fear, to rejoice with trembling, to kiss the Son, to come and worship Jesus Christ, giving ourselves to him fully and freely. God forbid that he be angry with any in the room and that they perish in the way after hearing this best of news. Lord, I pray that we would all be in the way of the blessed, that we would all be numbered with those who have put their trust in him. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.